ACR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. Today is Wednesday, the 9th of October. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, and we'd like to begin the show with an acknowledgement that we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. And with that, we start the show. And we start um, the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Will. Good morning, I'm Edwin. I'm Rob. And I'm Lois. And uh, welcome to Wednesday, everybody, if you're just waking up. Yeah, what, what, what is Wednesday in the symbol, like in, in the week? What is your Wednesdays like? Is, it, oh. is that that traditional up middle day where people are like, I've just got to get through it? No, it's my day off. Oh, it's your day off? Yeah, usually. I mean, I've been working the last few weeks, so I haven't been able to stick around <laughs> after the show. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but mostly it's, yeah. Mm. I work on the weekends. So. I, have a, I have a love-hate relationship with Wednesdays. Mm. Mondays I dislike. Oh. Historically. Poor Monday. Poor Monday. I was born on a Monday. I'm very sorry, Will, oh. <laughs> for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tuesdays I like because we used to have fish and chips every Tuesday. Mm. So it's just good. And then Wednesday I always get and I'm like, oh, it's not fish and chip day, but it's also not Monday. It's, mm. just, it's just a weird relationship. How about you huh. guys? Um... I don't know. Well, I guess like the thing with Wednesdays is like it's like building up towards radio, so it's getting ready and ready ah. for that. So it's kind of like in some ways it's the peak of the week. That's true, actually. Really? That's very true. Yeah. Lois? I like Wednesdays. It's also my day off. So <laughs> I do other things. I don't go to work. I come here and I, I go to uni. Huh. So I feel like it's a day for for hobbies. Mm. That's good. I like that. Mm-hmm. Hoping whatever listeners, you know, Wednesdays look like, it looks as good as last. <laughs> 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 a lovely day of like self-reflection, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. doing um, different things. So, how have we all been? I haven't been here for a little bit, so I don't know mm. what you, you folks have been up to. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all boring. We've discussed uni for the last three weeks. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Rob said he had some cool stuff kind of, yeah, kind of going yeah, on yeah. the corners. Yeah, I, well, like, I just had, like, I've had a hectic week, so I've just spent a lot of time listening to like my favourite musician, Nils Fram. I just like really meditative music, which has been lovely. But I'm seeing Harry Potter tomorrow, which Ooh. I am <laughs> super excited for. Yeah. We booked our tickets in last August. Mm-hmm. It's like the earliest I've ever booked tickets <laughs> for a show. Wait, this is a stage show? This is the stage okay. show, yeah. And what, what exactly is the deal? Uh, is it the Cursed Child one? Yeah, something. I'm so, something I'm like so out of the loop with it. Ah, so you're not telling me that it was the burlesque Harry Potter that happened <laughs> during um, Fringe, which I missed and I was so cut. Oh, but that's frustrating. Great. Yeah, it was like a, like a burlesque kind of... There was like strip and striptease and Fantastic. acrobatics and stuff. Um, sounded amazing. One yeah. of my housemates went to it and they really do. I don't know why I'm talking about a play that I didn't get to see. <laughs> uh, no, I, I feel that. Sometimes you have those um, theatre envy where you're just kind of like, I could have seen that. <laughs> like, oh. like films. Uh, so you know how um, La, La Mama Theatre a little while, um, it's, mm. uh, its main theatre burnt down mm. and they were doing this big fundraiser. Um, just a few days ago, they actually made their fundraising target, oh, okay. um, which is really great. And they're, um, getting work on, um, yeah, they, oh my gosh. Wow. They made $3.1 million. Wow. Um, wow. and so that'll, that'll get them a nice new space, okay. I imagine. But yeah, congratulations to them. Cause they're a lovely yeah. sort of small, I mean, like on, on the, on the scale, they're definitely an institution in mm-hmm. Melbourne. They're not a small, um, by any means theater, 
um, venue, but like, yeah, they, they're, they're really great at supporting young playwrights. Mm. Yeah, like I'm, I've got a friend who's a playwright who's had a few mm. shows put on there, or been involved in quite a few shows. So it's yeah. formed quite a lovely community. So yeah. non-for-profit. Yeah. And they were they were so great after the fire because mm-hmm. they still managed to put all of their shows on and mm-hmm. find other other venues. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, love La Mama. And also other venues <laughs> pulling together to support them in the shows that they were running at the time, which I thought was really beautiful. Like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Good Phoenix story. Good job, La Mama. Hooray. Good job, La Mama. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, today, Wednesday, is almost five past. What, what do we have? Before we get oh, directly sorry. into what we have, yeah, um, yeah. it's worth a shout out that today is um, Mental Health Week. Yes. Yes. And yeah. so kind of tying into what we're doing today, that will be a little bit of a topic that we kind of touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also touching on the fact that it's actually Gambling Awareness Week as well. Mm. And that will be one of our interviews at eight o'clock. So just kind of those two themes mm-hmm. we'll be kind mm-hmm. of hooking in with, um, maybe coming at it from a diff- bit of a different angle, looking at especially with self-care as kind of... Um, with sorry, mental health with um as an angle of self care, tied in with activism, mm. which I'm sure Thresia uh, has a lot of re- a bit very heavy relationship with. So, mm. yeah. So for my part, um, yeah, that will be at eight o'clock. But Rob, have you got some stuff coming up too? Yeah, at eight twelve, we've got Makari Ramsing, who's the founder of an organisation called Ethnic LGBT, which is all about the intersection between LGBT and culturally and linguistically diverse individuals. Mm. Um, I actually really wanted to interview her for We're at Pepper Week, but she was apparently busy doing amazing stuff in rural Queensland without an internet connection. So <laughs> we now have her, which would be great. So really hey. looking forward to that. Nice. And earlier in the show, um, I'm expecting around seven fifteen. We're going to be playing an interview that I did um, just yesterday afternoon with Fernanda Santos, who is a feminist socialist and um, is still involved, uh, is regularly involved with a, a faction of the PESOL party, which is a sort of uh, freedom socialist party in Brazil. Um, and so um, she has um, something interesting to say about um, Bolsonaro and his connections to right-wing militias that mm. exist in cities like um, Rio de Janeiro. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be good to hear a bit about that. And um, right up next, we have alternative news. Yeah. All right, That's we'll be right good. back. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. And you're listening to 3CR. This is the segment of Alternative News. This week doing Alternative News, we've got Lois um, kind of covering Extinction Rebellion. Is that right, Lois? Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't really um, look at the news at the moment without seeing some pretty dramatic arrests at the protests that have been happening all around Australia and the world. Um, So the climate protests that we've seen in Australia are part of a global movement led by Extinction Rebellion, who use civil disobedience to draw attention to climate change. 
Kicking off um, from the 7th of October is a week of action across 60 cities and protests are taking place in Europe, Asia, Africa, North and South America, as well as Australia and New Zealand. In Australia, protests have already begun in Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, Perth, Hobart, Adelaide, Cairns and Brisbane. In Melbourne, more than 100 protesters blocked the intersections, several intersections in the city. The ABC reported that police arrested nearly 60 demonstrators at the corner of Spring and Collins Street. And a lot of, um, a lot of government officials have said that the message of the protesters has been lost in the manner that they're protesting. Mm. And the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian said disrupting the public simply gets people's backs up which I thought was interesting because I guess that's the point of civil disobedience. (laughs) Mm. Um, Civil disobedience is at the core of their strategy. The group um, is self-described as an international movement that uses non-violent civil disobedience in an attempt to halt mass extinction and minimise the risk of social collapse. So what is their message then, and is it getting lost? The group has three demands. First, that governments declare a climate emergency. Second, by 2025, man-made emissions are reduced to zero. And third, that citizens' assemblies are established to inform policymaking. I didn't know what a citizen assembly was, so I had a look. And the group do have a document online, which is a pretty detailed description of how their citizen assembly would work. It's designed to involve the community in environmental policymaking, and it would be made up of a range of people, as well as experts and other stakeholders. And the everyday people are selected like a jury in the legal system. It's not a new idea. Uh, Some similar assemblies were used in the UK to help the government on the issue of genetically modified crops, which were and still are banned in the UK and then became banned across Europe. And in 2016 in South Australia, citizens' juries met to consider the creation of a nuclear waste dump, with two-thirds of the citizens' jury um, being against the dump. It was a contributing factor to the dump not going ahead, um, and, and it did never happen. Mm. Um, so as long as these assemblies have the support of government, they, they can directly influence policy. So my question for everyone is, if a citizen assembly on the environment existed and people could be called to go at random and give their opinion, mm. um, do you think Australians would still be protesting? Mm. Oh, that's a big one. Um, yeah, starting from my very limited knowledge on citizens' assembly, so I'll prefix it with that. Um, I, I'm, never, I'm never sure if they quite function very well. Mm-hmm. Just from what I've seen in revolutions from my history lessons, they always seem to go um, become like this vacuum of power, and it, it, it becomes very chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, who knows how it would, it would manifest in the 21st century. Um, but I, I fear Australians are so disengaged and disconnected from their politics that I fear forced engagement with that would actually have severe backlash. And, you know, it's just like being people being called up for jury. People would be like, no, I'm not, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to engage in politics. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very sceptical about how that would function. But that's, I guess, because we don't, we've never seen it. And it's never been discussed. Mm. That's, that's my petty for thought. Have you, anyone else got anything? Mm. Uh, I'm just trying to process it. <laughs> it's a what's, big question. What's your thought, Lois? Uh, I like the idea. You like, like the idea? In theory, definitely, because mm. I like participatory docu- democracy. Mm-hmm. It's great that we can elect officials during elections, but then in the meantime, we don't have citizens don't have much say in mm. the decisions that those officials then make. And um, if so many people are protesting about 
climate change, then maybe if people did have more of a direct influence mm-hmm. on government decision, they might be protesting less and be more active in trying to influence those environmental policy decisions. Yeah. I definitely like the idea of direct democracy and that idea or, or bringing in more aspects of direct democracy, as you're saying, like participating. So yeah. I, like the idea, I like the idea of encouraging people. I just remain critical as to whether people would, <laughs> would pick up the other end, I suppose. Mm. And what happens if you get people who get into parliament and go, oh, well, you know, it's not really man-made. We don't really need to do anything. Like, it, could it be delegitimized very easily? Well, on that point of sort of direct democracy, I think, like, there, I think at some points it's great, but it's also got to be used carefully. Mm. Because, like, so I was speaking with someone from the UK about, like, the Brexit um, plebiscite yes. they had, <laughs> and how, like, there were so many people just saying, you know, I'm a shop owner. I know nothing about Brexit. Why am I yeah. talking to this issue? And so I think that's the really important thing with direct democracy. It could and be like, sensitive to propaganda. Yeah, or just like in a citizens' um, mm. assembly, just making sure it's the right kind of topic that people can engage with, and mm. that it's not like a complex like political problem, because that can sometimes not that can backfire. That's true, mm. and you'd have to make sure the right people. Well, not the no, not the right not people, the right but people. but for example, um, it'd be very awkward if it didn't have like a First Nations approach mm. or, or or kind of. Um, seniority or, or that sort of thing. How do you mean? Well, what I mean is like if it's if it's citizens assembly and there's just random people being called, right? Mm. There's a lot of discussion within XR within the environmental movement. The first nations first nations justice has to come first, mm. and first nations land justice has to come first. Mm. And I'd be worried if this was just another mechanism of kind of shutting them out or not having them in that discussion. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that, discussion. that when it comes to uns- well, I don't know, like if if there's no system of like clear system of governments governance ensuring that certain people are encouraged to speak or get the space to speak mm. then people who are already structurally privileged will yeah, feel that that's kind of what I'm feeling yeah if that makes any sense like mm-hmm. if you just think about it like mm. a group of people just talking at a table it's the people who are most used to being allowed to talk who will take up the most space at that table and that's kind of yeah, I don't know. So, like, well, I guess that's, that's the theory where a citizen assembly mm. actually comes in is because if it's kind of picking people somewhat randomly across mm. Australia, you're not giving preference to the people who put their hands up to everything. You're kind of mm. directly reaching out to mm. them. So, I guess that's an argument for it. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, but even in the yeah. instance of the assembly, though, there needs to be something yes. as well. Yes, the framework of it. Um, yeah. funky conversation though, and just touching on your topic of like uh, Gladys saying, "Oh, it's turning people off." You know, um, I was really surprised because I imagine a lot of um. Uh, a lot of the older generations are going, you know, oh, these protesters are not, you know, doing all this stuff. But it was really interesting from my experience and people I've talked to. It's actually my generation who I've had the most kickback from. Mm. It's a lot of my generation going, push oh, back. they're holding, yeah, pushback, yeah. kickback. <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, they're holding up the trans. Oh, they, they, they shouldn't be taking up the intersection, you know, all those sorts of things. And then kind of the older generation, like my grandparents, are kind of like, nah, good on them. Because my grandparents are the ones, of course, who have gone also through other movements mm. historically, like, you know, back in the 20th century. And they're kind of like, well, it's annoying yes but these things kind of have to happen if change is going to happen so it's been really it's been a weird subversion of kind of my expectations going into it Mm -hmm. um just with who's who is going oh no they shouldn't be doing this kind of thing yeah Mm -hmm. interesting i i haven't noticed yet a difference in response from younger people compared to older people Mm. um yeah, I don't know. I just find it so interesting that it's a global movement. I knew that yeah. there were protests in Australia, but when I looked into it, um, there, yeah, it's happening all over the world. Mm, okay. Um, so that was that was a great. Um, that was kind of following up on that, and just kind of following up on XR, but also kind of environmental 
things happening around Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to quickly raise uh, the blockade at IMARC coming up. Mm. So the IMARC conference is a conference that basically collects together all of your, mm, there's going to be a very crude way of putting it, but coal producers, manufacturers, yeah. world yeah. leaders. Professional climate destroyers. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Professional okay. climate killers. Um, and they'll be gathering in Melbourne from October the 28th to the 31st. So because of that, our block, blockade IMARC has come out, which is mm-hmm. a group, community group uh, full of activists who are basically going to blockade the IMARC conference centre. And this will be happening, as I said, 28th to the 31st. You can find all the information on um, on Facebook if you just look up blockade IMARC. That's I-M-A-R-C. It'll be at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. Um, and just if you are interested in kind of getting involved with this, this, it's best to get involved sooner rather than later because they are looking for um, assurance that people are going to actually show up but also wanting to provide people with appropriate training so they know how to deal with pol- – they know how to kind of interact with police, they know what the whole kind of day is going to be like and all that sort of stuff. So there'll be coming uh, – there'll be a upcoming – there'll be an up-and-coming training session this Sunday, uh, also on the 14th of October and the 26th of October. So, yeah, the actual thing happens on the 28th. But if you get involved a little earlier, you can actually get some training so you're extra comfortable, you know exactly what your rights are and, you know, around movements around the day. You're listening to 3CR. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Fascist Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been pictured for a second time with one of the co-accused in the murder of Rio de Janeiro councillor Marielle Franco and her driver Anderson Gomes. Um, Marielle Franco was a queer black woman who organised against police violence and corruption. And so far, Bolsonaro isn't directly implicated in Franco's murder, but the photos do raise questions about the connections of the president's record on queer rights and his family's connections to organised crime. Um, and to give us a bit more information about this, I've invited Fernanda Santos into 3CR. Fernanda is a feminist socialist. Uh, she's a social worker and is involved in Mariela Vivi and um, the um, PSOL faction, so the PSOL faction, um, Luta Socialista, um, PSOL being a uh, freedom and socialist party in Brazil. Um, Fernanda, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, Will. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me to come. Yeah, and thank you for coming back. Um, so, to begin with, can you, just to give us a background to um, Bolsonaro being in this photograph, um, of course he takes photographs with lots of people, yeah. that is part of his um, his defence, is that, you know, I take photos with lots of people, it's hard to connect me to the murder of this um, this queer black 
councillor um, from a few years ago. Um, but can you give us an idea of President Bolsonaro's relationship with far-right militias, which are these these two men are supposed to be part of these militias? Uh, does he have, does the president have connections to these militias? Yeah, so we, um, Bolsonaro was always um, very clear about being a su- supporter of uh, militias, uh, even back in 2003 when he was still a congressman, uh, he made a formal speech uh, in the Congress uh, where they were discussing um, security, and they 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 said that uh, in Br- while in Brazil, until Brazil has um, that penalty as a legal action, um, the what we call extermination groups would be welcome to be doing their mm. job. And uh, he always made very clear uh, that he would be supporting um, like police officers as well, mm. uh, using um, violence and brutality um, uh, while they are yeah mm. in service. But also, like, um, he and his sons, they are also involved with uh, the, the politics in Rio. They've always been um, involving, you know, pro- protecting uh, police officers. And uh, the police in Rio is, a very, is the most corrupt in, in Brazil. Um, and um, the way it's growing and the militias are, are growing for a while now, um, it's um, most of I can even say like most of the political parties uh, in Rio are quite engaging with uh, militias. Mm. Um, so Bolsonaro had like there actually been two pictures of people involved uh, with a um, crime. With there was a previous one, the driver. Mm. Uh, he. Yeah, there there was driving the vehicle um, with the people that uh, shot her car, the car where she was. Um, So he he was in a picture um, with Bolsonaro back when he was a police officer. Mm. Um, So that was posted as well in social media. And then now um, there's this other person. Um, because he's always been very clear about his views about around um, police violence and mm. militia. So I think, yeah. yeah, those groups will always be yes. supporting uh, his elections. Uh, and so the PR around these militias or these paramilitary groups is that yeah. they are there to pacify the the city, the favelas and all those parts of the city against drug dealers. That's the the dichotomy that is put out there, that you have... Violent drug dealers, and to pe- to keep them down in the in the the language of Bolsonaro and people like him, it, are these militias who are um, classed as um, they're often staffed by p- active police or re- retired police. Is that right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It they started growing like in 2000 with this idea um, because they would even occupy favelas mm. uh, and uh, take like the the drug dealers out and but then they would occupy it um and they they would maintain themselves like with extortion of mm. the population like charging mm. for everything um protection racket yeah, yeah yeah and yeah they would yeah the po- population would be uh, quite afraid of them mm. and they also like they control election uh quite a bit like who can actually do mm. make their campaigns in those um Areas, so mm. it's so the 
that's how they get very involved with political parties as well. Um, can we talk about how um, Marielle Franco, as a councillor, was a very outspoken advocate for for black people as well and for, for queer people. She identified um, in a, w- a way that can be described as bisexual in, in public as well. And um, so does does that stand... Um, do, do those messages of um, empowerment of black people and of queer people stand counter to what the, the militias believe in or was it just coincidental to to their their um, their grievance um, against it? Yeah, so the, the investigation uh, has been quite like um, controversial. Like there's so many uh, different items, like so many different things involved. Uh, so many people that would actually be interested in having her murder happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I it looks like it is it is like her her main focus was always you know the the people in the favelas and she would always go and um talk each time there was someone uh, murdered um she would um always make bring that up uh and in like during during the sessions in camera in the um camera while she was walking she would also uh like she she would raise herself as like bring herself as a feminist and um racism uh and tell them to not try to silence her as well which uh, and that she had the right to be talking and i can I can believe like that would be um already a big thing uh for those guys to be dealing with because it was quite um yeah, expressive, new, um, more yeah, people being empowered. Um, so, to, so maybe to to bring this to summation, um, what do you make of these photos? Just to, mm. um, so I mean, it doesn't implicate him directly being photographed with these these two accused in the murder of um, a very important voice in the Rio Council. Um, but what do you make of Bolsonaro having these kinds of connections? Oh yeah, yeah. It says a lot about him, uh, the pe- the people that supported his uh, elections, uh, and well, which is is nothing new because he was always very clear, actually, about his beliefs and uh, how he defends, um, yeah, people. Which um, yeah, like the the police corruption or those groups. He he has always uh, been in favor of, um, um, yeah. Extermination of, you know, crimin- yeah, uh, criminality, the way he puts it, like mm-hmm. he won't put them as criminals as well. So I think, um, um, yeah. Um, I've been speaking to Fernando Santos, who is a, um, a feminist socialist, a member of Luta Socialista, which is a faction of PESOL, um, w- workers and um, Freedom Party in, in Brazil and also involved in the Marielle Vivi Collective. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, 
So go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now and you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR. Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important. Community is important. Community radio is very, very important. And you are a winner. And you're listening to 3CR. What a lovely community service announcement. And speaking about other lovely things, this week is uh, Mental Health Awareness Week, which is a fantastic kind of week to raise awareness and advocacy around mental health and mental health issues. With that in mind, we're going at it from a different kind of different angle today, 3CR. We're going to look at how mental health kind of wraps in with the role of the activist. And mental health and self-care is kind of a tool and a practice to kind of, yeah, maintain mental health. So we'll be listening to the words of Malibu Safidi today, who is a South African activist, writer and social commentator. Uh, she's been a development, development worker and social commentator on development, identity and gender issues. She's the founder of Lady Leader, a platform that allows women, as she says, to just be, which is a lovely quote, I thought. She enters into this uh, specific TED talk discussing a day in 2015 where she realized that she had lost the ability to care for herself. Within this snippet, she's going to discuss the pressures placed on women and just generally people and the use of self-care as kind of a tool of self-preservation. We as women have a very complex relationship with ourselves, you know. There's a very thin line between who we want to be and who society expects us to be. If you look at the history of what it means to be a woman, you will know that women bodies have always been marginalized bodies. We've never truly, a woman has never truly belonged to herself. She's either just belonged to her family, she belonged to society, she belonged to her husband. That is why some men have the audacity to write books telling women how to think and how to act. And some women will write books on how to be a fascinating woman because you don't have the ability to determine who you want to be for yourself. So you find yourself in a conundrum. On one side, you're marginalized. Society, there's lots of expectation of what it means to be a woman. 
when you need to get married, when you must have children, how you need to address society, how you need to behave. On another side, looking at our democracy, there's lots of opportunities for women to be influential in the economic space, political space, to be influential in policy making, you know, with this new slay age um, language, slay us girl. And when, 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 I mean, it happens to me all the time, Twitter and Instagram, when they put up a slayer and the slayer has traveled 16 continents and has, has, has done all these great things. So you feel pressured that I need to be part of this development and I need to slay, I need to have magic. <laughs> and then they remind you, as a woman, we God. I need you to take a very good look at me and then look at that rock. <laughs> a rock is cold, it's hard, it's lifeless, it's just there. And here I am, as a woman, I'm being likened to a bowler, to a rock. I ask myself, what have we deserved and what have we done to a point that we are likened to rocks? <laughs> and my favorite, a woman holds a knife by its sharp end. And I look at my beautiful hands. And I'd be like, may I not be that woman who is forced to hold a knife by its sharp end? This is a very complex relationship that we have with ourselves as women. And then society packages this beautiful woman, this beautiful woman, and they call it balance, right? This conundrum that I'm talking about, they call it balance. You can be an amazing wife and a mother and still rocket as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman. They call it having it all, being everything to everyone. You wake up in the morning, let's say you're married, you kiss your husband good morning, you fix lunch for your children to go to school, you wake them up, you make sure that they get bathed, your husband only wants you to iron the shirt because you know how to make that line, you iron that shirt, you have to shower, after showering you have to make sure that your children get to school, either you drop them off or there's transport, then you rush because your first meeting is at 7 o'clock, and you don't have time to read emails. Your meeting's at 7. After 7, there's a meeting at 8. And there's a very important meeting at 2 o'clock. And then the crash phones and says your child is sick. You tell your boss, oh, I have to rush to pick up my child. I can't make this meeting. And your boss said, when you took this position, you knew what it entailed. This is so unprofessional. You try and phone this babysitter. has nowhere to be located. So unfortunately, you have to say, I can't attend the meeting. I am going to get my child. You get your child to the doctor. After the doctor, you go home. Hey, you need to cook. This time your child is crying because the child is sick. And then the other child comes from school. And you have to undress them, put them in a bath, still make sure that the, cook, the pots are, are cooking, put dinner on the table, feed, 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 feed. And when whew, you're about to sleep, that husband goes... <laughs> Whew. 
sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And some might be like, Malebu, you're exaggerating. There's no such thing. But really, there are people who are living that life because why? Balance. Having it all. Everything for everyone. When I found myself on that floor, December 2015, I realized that I had been living a life that is trying to be everything to everyone. From the age of 10, I was that young person who started community work. At the age of 10, I was counseling people. While my peers are running around outside, I am counseling people. Everything around my life was, was, was centered around helping people. When I was in corporate, I remember that I didn't have a lot of time for community work. And one leadership coach said to me, if you are not impacting people, you are being a parasite. And I said, I do not want to be a parasite, so help me God. So I resigned and I lived for people. I ran a counseling organization. I ran a mentorship organization for women, for young boys, for young girls. I did a prison research study where I worked with, with inmates. I was a speaker, meaning every single weekend I was speaking. I worked with the Department of Education, and I still studied. And I still had a day job at Facebook because I'm that notorious Facebooker. And people would say to me, Malebu, when do you sleep? And I'd be like, I'll only sleep when I'm dead. Audre Lord says, Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. When I woke up the next day after my pool of tears, I phoned a friend of mine because I wanted to reach out. I cried and he said to me, Maleb, that's so unlike you. Snap out of it. You're strong. You're a lioness. <laughs> and I nearly fell into that trap. I nearly fell into that trap. Then I decided that I will no longer put my body under pressure because a lot of women today are dying because of stress-related diseases, because of pressure, because of all sorts of things that we carry. And that is when I decided that in order for me to be effective in society as a policymaker, in politics, I then needed to start to put myself first. And the reason Audre Lord says self-care is a form of warfare is because if you're a marginalized body that is meant to be last and put everyone first, the minute you put yourself first, you are messing up status quo. Because why? When you put yourself first, I'm sure some of you are sitting there and say, hey, dinner must be ready now. My children, hey, my husband, if he doesn't find me at home. Because we're so socialized to put others first. The minute you put yourself first, you are messing things up. You are saying that I am enough. And so my challenge for us today is that if we want to be effective citizens who are truly impacting the economy, policy, politics, it is important to put ourselves first. It is important to say that I have to choose what I want to be and not what society has put out me to be. It is time that we become 
the women that we want to be. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Elise Platt and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your radio dial. Dole Association of Victoria presents the 34th Malvern Dole Fair on Saturday, October the 12th. On at the Malvern Town Hall from 10 till 5, there will be antique to modern dolls, original craft works, art and craft supplies, fabrics, fashion, displays and raffles, as well as doll repairs by David Short. Find them on Facebook, the Malvern Doll Fair, Saturday the 12th of October. A 3CR supporter. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow 40th Anniversary Spring Festival will be held on Saturday the 19th of October, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on a huge variety of tomatoes and vegetable seedlings, fruit trees, perennials and more at our community nursery. A 3CR supporter. We're going to throw to a song right now. This is This Isn't Disneyland by the Sisters of Invention. You learn something new every day, new every day, to the day that you die. I left school years ago, school years ago, thought you should know. And old, old as obstacles, strongholds and falls, there's a brick wall. I'm not saying you're mean, but there are some things you haven't seen.
Gardening is back. Hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and over 35 market stalls to get you in the garden and thinking about sustainable living this October. Spring into Gardening, Sunday, October 13 at Victoria Gardens, Paran. See the City of Stonington website for details. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It is 7.45, we're heading up to 8 o'clock, and we're going to have another little segment about self-care, activism, mental health. This one is from Angela Davies, who is, of course, the um, famous American political activist, academic, and author, everything kick-ass. <laughs> and she'll be talking, discussing radical self-care uh, during the Afropunk Festival. So apologies, this audio does have festival sounds in the background, a lot of doof-doof especially, um, and Angela can be sometimes a little bit quiet, but well worth to listening to what she has to say. Anyone who's interested in making change in the world also has to learn how to take care of herself, himself, their selves. For a long time, activists... Um, did not necessarily think that it mattered uh, to um, take care of them, th- themselves in terms of what they eat, in terms of mental self-care, uh, corporal self-care, spiritual self-care. I know that there were some people who emphasized it. I'm thinking about uh, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, Erica Huggins, who began to practice yoga and meditation in the 70s, and she encouraged many people, including Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, to join that practice. I think they did a little bit of it, but I think a movement would have been very different had we understood the importance uh, of that kind of self-care. Personally, I started practicing yoga and meditation when I was in jail, um, but it was more of an individual practice. Uh, Later, I had to recognize um, the importance of emphasizing the collective character of that work on the self. Well, it means that um, we're able to bring our entire selves into the movement. Uh, 
It means that we incorporate into our work as activists ways of um, acknowledging and hopefully also uh, moving beyond trauma. It means a holistic approach, I think. Longevity is important, and not simply individual longevity. It is um, equally important to recognize that as we develop our movement today, we're creating a terrain uh, for the emergence of, of, of new activists. Uh, and what we do today has an impact on what younger people will be able to do tomorrow. I think we have to imagine ourselves as connected to people who came before us um, and to those who will come after us. Black people all over the world have been subjected to the most unimaginable forms of violence, uh, slavery, uh, torture. But at the same time, and this is what black people have offered the world, um, we've also produced beauty, uh, music, and art. Uh, and I think that the self-care that gets um, produced by black people recognizes the connection between struggle and art and, and, and beauty and the imagination. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous uh, not to recognize that as we struggle, we are attempting to presage the world to come. And the world to come should be one in which we acknowledge uh, the um, collectivity and connections and, and relations and joy and, and if we don't start practicing collective self-care now um, there's no way uh, to imagine much less reach a time of freedom. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Victoria's Roadside Drug Testing Program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Right now we're going to throw to a song. This is Whistle While You, While you Work by Wheelchair Sports Champ.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us, uh, Aboriginal Radio, and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make and sure I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to 3CR. We're coming up to 8 o'clock. Now, for our next interview, we'll be looking at Gambling uh, gambling Harm Awareness, which is running um, this week over the 7th to the 13th of October. Uh, the National Advocacy Organisation for Alliance, uh, called Alliance for Gambling Reform will be running an event this week. Now, the details you need to know are that the event will be running Friday the 11th at 9.30 on the steps of Melbourne Parliament, and I'll repeat that at the end of the interview. Um, but we have Ashley from the Alliance for Gambling Reform uh, here to kind of tell us a little bit more about the event. So good morning, Ashley. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so the Victorian government is currently launching into the Royal Commission into Mental Health, and this event seeks to kind of inform how gambling and gambling addiction can kind of feed into that and kind of, yeah, contribute to mental health issues in Victoria. So could you kind of set the scene for us? What do we know about the connection between gambling and mental health? Mm. Um, Well, certainly for a long time we've known that there's an inextricable link between gambling harm and mental ill health. And um, what I mean when I talk about that link is that um, people experiencing gambling harm are up to eight times more likely to be experiencing mental ill health and vice versa. So um, mental health can both be a a cause of gambling harm and um, it can exacerbate existing um, gambling harm and and vice versa. So... um, uh, particularly with the work that we do, uh, we're not a service provision organisation, but we do work um, throughout everything that we do with people with lived experience of gambling harm themselves. And almost every single person that I speak to who has lived through gambling harm themselves or has a uh, family member um, who has done so has um, had extreme experiences of mental ill health. Hmm. And I was reading on uh, your website that the culture of gambling in Australia is very large. I mean, um, Australians spend more per person on gambling than any other country in the world. Mm. Almost that double of that of New Zealand. Now, that mm. shocked me. I knew we had a problem. Yeah. But how does that kind of culture of gambling compound this issue? Does it make it uh, more socially acceptable or, or less socially visible as a kind of route to mental illness or, or mental yeah, mm. issues? Well, I guess the problem that we've found as an organisation is that 
you know, gambling has become so entrenched in Australia. Um, it's kind of crazy to think that poker machines were only introduced in Victoria in 1991 and they've become so entrenched mm. in our society here just in that short period of time. Um, and I think that the root cause of that is that um, in Australia, particularly across the eastern states, um, governments were um, looking for a revenue source um, and poker machines were kind of this new, um, I guess, exciting way of making a lot of money very quickly. Mm. And um, what governments uh, unfortunately haven't paid attention to really is the human cost and how um, that has really... Um, exacerbating existing mental ill health in the community as well as other issues. Um, so at the moment, I guess, like our government is making uh, seven to eight percent of revenue um, of its revenue off of gambling in Victoria, but um, the cost of that, in terms of public health costs, is far higher. Um, we know that twenty-two percent of Victoria's mental health costs um, are estimated to come from gambling harm, yeah. and um, that research has come out of the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation, which is a government-funded um, independent body. So, yeah. so one hand saying you know this thing, and the other the other hand of the government's kind of ignoring what this what's coming out of their own mouthpiece. Yeah, well, we just kind of think that uh, you know there are I guess like the gambling industry is such a powerful um, I guess like body in Australia. They have so much influence over our decision makers, over our mm. communities. Um, and I think like what's really being left behind is these conversations of, um, from people who have lived experience of the harm. Mm. I think like that the main problem is that people who are experiencing extreme levels of harm are often people who are not heard. Um, whether they are currently sleeping rough, um, whether they are incarcerated or whether unfortunately they have died their voices are not being heard and what we're hoping to do is, is to bring those voices out and to bring them to decision makers this Friday. Absolutely and for the um, event itself this Friday you have three keynote speakers from what I've seen. Um, I'll just read them out now because I thought there are other amazing collection of people. Mm. We have Ethan Taylor, a young Waramungu man who's with, who has lived experience of gambling harm. We have Carolyn Crawford, an advocate with lived experience of gambling harm who spent 18 months in prison mm. for taking money to gamble on the pokies. Yep. Uh, and we have Reverend Tim Costello, a chief advocate for the Alliance of gambling reform. Mm-hmm. Now, I just wanted to ask you, those are three very different perspectives. Uh, why did the organisation choose for these three individuals to speak? Um, well, we know that um, there's no uh, reason as to why anyone could not experience gambling harm. So the people, oh. that ex- the people that experience it are from all walks of life. Um, but what we really wanted to capture was that fact. So um, Ethan, who is speaking, um, also works for a youth Indigenous um, suicide prevention organisation. Um, so he has his own lived experience, but also the experiences of the young um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that he works with to share. Um, and I guess like the reason that we wanted to bring someone young on board is because mm. that we feel that young people are often not heard in terms of speaking about their gambling harm. Like it may not be pokies that young people are, are using, though increasingly that is the case. Oh. Um, it's more so sports gambling. So all those sports bet ads that pop up on your iPhone, mm. um, things like this, particularly amongst young men are really socialized into that culture. Um, we also wanted Ethan to speak because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are disproportionately affected by gambling harm. And um, that's something that Ethan can speak to. Uh, our organisation, you know, doesn't have experience um, as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander um, authority. So we wanted to bring Ethan on board to really speak to that from his experience. Um, Carolyn. 
um, again, has experience of incarceration as a result of gambling harm. So her story, I guess, is one that we hear all too common of an older woman um, mm. going to um, being incarcerated for debt that they owe um, because of gambling harm that's resulted for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think that that is something that's very stigmatised and not spoken about. Um, and of course, we also have Tim because Tim has been our chief advocate for the past few years and has been working in this area for a long time. And um, Tim in particular has ministered over a lot of um, funerals of people who have died by suicide as a result of gambling harm. And we wanted to bring that perspective in too. Absolutely. And I'm just just touching on the use of language here. Yes. Um, within within your discussion around this topic, you use the term gambling harm. I was wondering what's the significance of that that phrasing? Why mm. why why choose that language? So I guess um, the work that we do as an organisation is not service provision. So we're not dealing with the individual um, or the person who is experiencing uh, problems with their gambling. What we're um, talking about is we're trying to destigmatize gambling in the community because what we... Um, believe and what is backed up by research is that it shouldn't be an individual problem. There should be no blame on the individual. It's actually up to the system to step in and, and regulate to protect people from um, addictive design features in, in gambling products. So um, gambling harm as well we use because it's not just about the person who gambles. We know that um, up to seven to ten people are affected by someone's gambling, whether it be family members, um, friends, uh, colleagues. So what we're really talking about is the community harm here rather than just the harm on the individual. Gotcha. So within this community approach and especially uh, your event calling for the Royal Commission into Mental Health to kind of focus on this, mm -hmm. um, how would, what's your desired response? How would we see kind of gambling harm incorporated into the frameworks we have within Melbourne, uh, sorry, Victoria, approaching mental health? Yeah, well, I guess um, at the moment it's 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 a pretty simple response that we would hope for because unfortunately, um, though the government has had this royal commission into Victoria's mental health system, which we really welcome, we know it's something that our society and our community wants. Um, that the terms of reference don't reference gambling harm at all, mm. um, and you know, like uh, a few years ago, we kind of did the research and um, again going through it each time, and we find that um, each public health framework and mental health strategy, whether it's the Victorian Suicide Prevention Plan, mm. um, the Victorian Mental Health Strategy over the next ten years, none of them mention gambling harm in mm. any substantial way. And um, given the research that has come out of, um, whether it be just re the recent Royal Commission, where mm. a bunch of local councils have explicitly mentioned how much gambling harm is impacting their communities and what they're hearing from their constituents, um, we know that this is a massive blind spot. Yeah. Blind spot, yeah. And um, so I guess, like, we... Uh, have a bunch of um, harm minimization and prevention policies that we'd, we have um, established as backed up by research mm -hmm. um, that could help the community in terms of minimizing gambling harm. But what we're hoping for is for the public health professionals to really take this on board. Mm. Um, I guess uh, to reference uh, what it would look like, um, it was only not so long ago that um, tobacco changes came in where it was... Um, we're not allowed to smoke in public now in Victoria and there's plain packaging on tobacco. Mm. And now it's um, kind of like a uh, really strange thing to see someone smoking in a restaurant in Victoria, right? That's true, yeah. And um, what we're hoping for 
is that kind of public health response that facilitates oh. that behaviour change throughout society to protect people from gambling harm. Gotcha. So it's more of a, um, it needs to be a community awareness thing and then a community intervention thing almost kind of thing. Like people would, people would kind of not moderate each other, but kind of there'd be, there'd be that regulation in place. Well, essentially, Yes, but it is it's the responsibility responsibility of the government yep. to step in mm. and um, to really work with people with lived experience of gambling harm, but also the experts in the field. Mm. Um, so whether it's people who are working in service provision or people like us who are advocating on behalf of better policies, um, these need to be included in mental health and public health strategies, just alongside alcohol, alongside tobacco, um, alongside those other things that are having an impact on community health. Gambling mm. needs to be there too. Yeah, and for for the listeners kind of listening to this interview, uh, what would be your one kind of desired message or, or your main message you want to get out to the people listening to, obviously to come along and support if they're interested, but also like what's the main point you want to get across to people? Yeah, I think um, it is really important to consider the stigma that comes alongside gambling in Australia. Um, it is so normalised in our society here. And I guess what we're really trying to challenge is to... Um, follow the theme of the Gambling Harm Awareness Week, which is to talk about it, um, but also to kind of make sure that we're not placing the blame on the individual. It's mm. really up to the government to be regulating this industry. Um, the gambling industry is one of those um, corporate bodies that, you know, just gets away with so much in this country. Mm. And um, we've seen recently all of the corruption that's come out of Crown Casino. That kind of behaviour is just littered across the entire industry. And um, it's up to the government to step in and make sure that they're protecting people against that kind of cowboy behaviour that we're mm. seeing. Absolutely. And uh, just... To get a quick comment, uh, there's been a long, gone, long conversation about having a Royal Commission into the gambling institutions themselves. Could I just get you to touch on that? What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, this is something that we've been pushing for since we kind of started up in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're really hoping for, you know, is to have a Royal Commission into that behaviour. You know, um, from our perspective, sometimes it seems that the links between gambling and decision makers and in terms of like donations that are passed between the industry and politics, mm. um, it's kind of, you know, what we're seeing play out with like the Banking Royal Commission. Um, it's this ongoing problem with commercial huge bodies having too much influence over political decision makers. Um, but we really want to see like more research into the harm that this is having on communities. Like the, the research that has been done in the past has been kind of passed off on this um, notion of responsible gambling. Um, mm. You know, every time you listen to the radio, it's, um, you know, uh, like a tab ad and yeah. um, gamble responsibly. <laughs> and they chuck it at the end too. Yeah. I know something interesting. Um, recently there was one for obviously the AFL grand final. Mm. That was a big one. Mm -hmm. And it was playing actually after the grand final ended. Yeah. And it was still going, you know, you can still bet online. And I was like, what? wait, you're like... Two week, you're like a week or so on a date. So yeah. it's this weird, it's this weird ingrained, that, as you said, it's like a tag on. Oh, of. absolutely. And it's just present in everything. Um, mm. We also do a lot of campaigns around sports gambling. And, and what we're increasingly concerned about is the young people that are growing up yeah. now mm. um, who, you know, are not able, I guess, like through research we've, Decide, like we've seen that they're not able to distinguish between sport and odds. So um, knowing the odds of a sport that they're watching or, or playing or engaging in in their community is just as central as like the community aspect of sport to young people now. And um, we just think that that, 
you know, is is so devastating to the community and we want to see that stop. So obviously um, the Alliance for Gambling Reform is just a group, an advocacy body, and mm-hmm. as you said, not service providers. For someone who is, just quickly finishing up, someone who is listening, who is experiencing gambling harm or knows or thinks someone in their network is, what would be your first port of action? Um, so I would recommend... Um, you know, we always direct people through to the appropriate service providers. So Gambler's Help in Victoria would be mm-hmm. the person to refer someone on to, um, but also Lifeline. Um, but something that we do know is that because of the stigma that comes along with gambling harm, um, oftentimes uh, speaking to someone who works for an organisation called Gambler's Help can be quite difficult. Um, so another way of going about it is to talk to um, a financial counsellor or advisor who can often help in these Instances. Fantastic. Well, your event will be running, uh, just to remind audiences, on Friday the 11th, this Friday, at 9.30 uh, on the steps of Melbourne Parliament. Sounds like you're going to have some amazing voices there. And, um, I hope it all goes well, Ashley. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. No problem. My pleasure. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Stay tuned. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR and on the line we have Makai Ramsing who is an award-winning social entrepreneur from Brisbane. So she has founded two social enterprises in the human rights space, the first one called Ethnic LGBT+, which is Australia's first online storytelling platform for CALD and LGBTIQA Australians, and then Mix Chai, which sells ethically sourced, environmentally sustainable chai, which raises funds for youth empowerment. 
And so Makara really strongly believes in how stories save lives, and so she's been spending a lot of her time travelling around rural Australia in her own self-built tiny home, which sounds <laughs> awesome, um, and has been recognised as one of Australia's leading women of influence and was also a finalist for Queensland Young Australian of the Year. Welcome, Makara. Hi, good morning, Robin. Good morning to your listeners. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on. Um, I first wanted to ask, what is uh, Ethnic LGBT Plus and why did you decide to establish it? Sure, of course. Um, pretty much how it started was just through my own journey, Rob, of uh, I identify as a queer South African Indian Australian woman and having... Um, these multiple sort of uh, facets of my identity presented a fair few challenges in my adolescence and young uh, adult years, and in particular in bringing my uh, wonderful, loving Indian family into my identity as a queer woman. And my parents and I had been on this uh, 10-year journey of understanding and unpacking what it meant for me to be uh, a queer person of colour in Australian society, in my South African Indian society and in my family units. And we, achieved, we arrived at this wonderful place of love and support and I knew it was a story like that that I could have really used through my journey. So it, it was literally sitting at my kitchen benchtop and realising that I had to share my experiences and the patterns I was noticing that other young queer people of colour were facing. And so I literally jumped onto YouTube, learned how to do a WordPress site, um, started to talk to a community who I knew was struggling with similar sexual and cultural identity issues that I faced and wanted to provide a resource where people who identified as culturally and linguistically diverse and LGBTIQA could see themselves, could have their stories heard. And that's what Ethnic LGBT Plus is. It's an online storytelling platform where you can access stories of the community or academic articles or events or any applications going for bursaries or sponsorship. And you can also share your own story should you feel comfortable. That's, yeah, that's great. And I guess through this kind of work that you've been focusing on narratives and sharing experiences, what are some of the more sort of, uh, I guess, consistent narratives and experiences that you found amongst ethnic LGBT plus identifying people? Yes, well, um, having had the privilege of spending a fair amount of time uh, on the road and working in particular with rural and regional LGBTIQA communities, there's definitely two patterns that I've noticed in the communities and individuals I've engaged with. And the first for uh, rural and regional communities in particular is access to reliable medical care, especially for our young trans community who often have a visiting physician come to the town perhaps once a month and if there's no trust built with the physician, it's, it's very hard to then navigate that process. Uh, in particular, one anecdote stands out to me of a 17-year-old, an incredible young trans woman who was driving the 300 kilometers to Darwin just to access reliable medical health care. And because she was underage, was unable to legally sign in to stay overnight without her parents being there. And so would drive the 300 kilometers back after her appointment. And it's just uh, a whole new level of challenges. The second sort of pattern I've noticed in rural and regional, and this is definitely applicable to urban areas too, is the level of violence that exists within LGBTIQA, violence to self, whether mental or physical, or violence um, that has come from intimate partner violence and first responders not being sure or educated on how to deal with those situations. 
Specifically to CALD, there's three patterns um, we've noticed at Ethnic LGBT+, and as backed by the academic articles. And as are generally challenges around language, not having the actual words in one's native tongue to express identity or convey identity to family members, or those words being quite negative. The second is fear over the compounding factors of facing you know, homophobia, transphobia, or biphobia, and racism on top of that. And the third factor being these conflicting narratives between one's sexual identity and one's cultural identity, and how that reconciles, uh, especially if they're a migrant or a refugee to Australia, and cultural identity is all they have or what they hold on to, and, and that sits at odds with sexual identity. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I guess... When you're working through a lot of this work, um, obviously you have to find sort of the courage to sort of back yourself and also support others. So how are you finding people are supporting themselves and how are you supporting yourself when working through these sort of more complex scenarios and sort of learning about all these different stories and experiences? Yes, it's a a question um, I think that's always evolving for me. I know uh, and how I've responded has changed uh, over the years, but at the core of it, is that belief that I'm so passionate about in just disclosure and having safe places to share one's story. So you don't feel alone. You realize you have so much more in common uh, with uh, others in the community or allies um, than you do that you felt was different. I feel a lot of other young uh, CALD LGBTIQA people respond by going online and looking for that acceptance, looking for that representation. Um, and it's wonderful when you can find positive stories, and especially if you can find that in person. But my advice would be is get a network, find, find at those few people who just love you for who you are and, and what you're going through and your changes, because at the end of the day, I believe we all need people and we all need someone who we know just has our back and I think that has been one of the best coping mechanisms and strength for me going forward and when it gets tough it's reading the stories of other incredible people in my community who I identify with that is keeps me going and, and why I continue to do the work I do. Yeah absolutely and also a really important topic considering this week is Mental Health Awareness Week as yes. well. Um, uh, something else I'm also really interested to talk about with you mm. is how, so in 2018, you sort of undertook a study tour to understand and sort of establish more of an Indo-Pacific LGBT plus leader network. How did this tour, or firstly, did this tour change your understanding of how to support ethnic LGBT plus identifying communities? Yes, it definitely did. And I was very fortunate to be a Westpac Social Change Fellow last year, which enabled me then to access these amazing leaders in the Indo-Pacific. And the reason I chose to tour the Indo-Pacific is a lot of the communities, ethnic LGBT plus health in Australia, come from these regions. And I wanted to provide LGBT resources in a cultural context that replicated what was going on in their home environment. So I purposely chose to travel to places like Vietnam, Malaysia, India, which was of particular significance to me. And how it changed my understanding was, just the level of resilience and courage shown by local LGBT groups, especially in areas where there was no government or legal support for human rights advocacy, let alone LGBTIQA issues. In particular, I had the opportunity to be in Taiwan when they were voting on their same-sex referendum, and unfortunately, the vote was an overwhelming no at that point, and I remember standing with these activists in this room and I felt so shattered, so broken 
thinking, you know, how how can I help more? Yet there was such a, a buoyancy in the room and, and a, a silver lining as they realized the fact that they could even talk and march on these issues was such a huge step forward for the country. And, you know, it was looking for those, Looking for those lights of hope in situations that I previously thought were so dark uh, was a huge mental learning curve for me. And second was um, just what was interesting, how human rights was phased in the Indo-Pacific. So talking more about notions of love wins and uh, love is love rather than human right language and talking about equality and access, I found that very interesting, how it was put in terms that uh, were more value-laden or closer to home there than um, human rights language. Hmm. And putting everything in sort of more positive terms, as you're saying, like love wins and, yeah, affirmative words. Um, I guess before finishing up, I just wanted to ask, for people who are identified, also people who actually don't identify as LGBT Mm -hmm. plus or aren't from ethnic backgrounds, how can they take small steps to help support individuals who do identify with these communities? That's a great question, Rob, and, and something that my tour last year also informed I think the first thing I'd say, and this applies to everyone really, is drop assumptions. Drop assumptions of what you think a, a uh, culturally and linguistically diverse LGBTIQA individual looks like or acts like or feels like. Um, approach people with curiosity rather than judgment and ask questions. Uh, I think that's such a big important step in, in support is um, asking the individual what is needed or, or how they are feeling before assuming. And I think the second is um, really realizing that LGBTIQA or culturally and linguistically diverse is often, is one aspect of a human being's identity and it's not their be-all or end-all and realizing how much more in common uh, both allies and those from the community have rather than differences. I think those are the two main learnings I've, I've learned in my journey of how to support individuals who are different from me. Wonderful. Makara, thank you so much for coming on this morning to talk about your work. Thank you for having me, Rob, and thank you to your listeners. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, you too. Uh, so that was Makara Ramsing, who's the founder of an organisation, Ethnic LGBT+. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code and follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR funded by the City of Yarra 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program you can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Wednesday Breakfast and we're coming up to 8.30, but we're not there yet. So it's time <laughs> for weather. Um, well, you if you're already outside of the house and this isn't news to you, it's cold. It's cold today. <laughs> we're hitting a top of 15. Oh. It's been raining. I got wet on the way here. And um, I, I saw a guest had some speckles of rain on her glasses when she came into the studio this morning. So it's still kind of raining is my understanding. Um, so, so be aware of that. Uh, it looks like the wind will not get very high. It's going to get up to 20, 25 degrees, uh, 25 Ks to give you an idea of what that means. Slightly windy days are like, or quite windy days are like 45 k's an hour. Um, so today, breeze. 
Um, yeah, what, what did we want to do now? We've had some fantastic voices on the mm. show. I thought we'd just mm. give them a quick shout-out yeah, so listeners can look them up if they want to. So we absolutely. started off at 7.15 with uh, Fernando, is that correct? Yeah, we were speaking to Fernando Santos, who is a, um, a member of Luta Socialista, which is a faction of PESOL, which is a um, far-left-wing political party in Brazil. Mm. Um, talking about Bolsonaro and his associations with far-right-wing militias. Absolutely, and some fantastic female voices today as well. We Mm -hmm. also heard from um, activists Angela Davis, who is... um an institution, I think, yeah, in the world of activism. Yeah, no introduction. <laughs> yep, and uh, Malibu uh, Safodi from South Africa, who mm-hmm. was also has some cool words to say. Um, also, at 8 o'clock, we, list- we talked to Ashley mm-hmm. from the Alliance of Gambling Reform, um, and that was, yeah, about kind of Gambling Awareness Week is running this week, uh, mm-hmm. and her event is going Friday, so that's pretty cool. And mm-hmm. we just finished up, as Rob said. Yeah, with Makara Ramsing, who's founder of Ethnic LGBT+, so all about stories for culturally and linguistically diverse individuals who also identify as part of the LGBT+, community. Community. Mm. And just before we do go uh, with our with our wrap up, um, just letting you know that there is currently a declare a climate emergency petition circulating. This is uh, initiated by the government or by the opposition, I should say. <laughs> uh, it's on the Australian Parliamentary website. I won't tell you the exact web link because it's a bit bit confusing, but it is the petition number EN one zero four one called Declare a Climate Emergency. Mm. That will be open until the 16th if you're interested in signing it. Mm. Uh, but basically, it's already got quite a substantial amount of signatures. Mm. Last time I checked, it was 260,000. Wow. 267,000, yeah. Mm. So we're getting up to that 3%, mm-hmm. almost, almost. We yes. just need another 100,000. Can <laughs> you um, remind us what the name of the petition yes. is again, please? Absolutely. Declare a Climate Emergency, petition number EN1041. And we'll have links to that maybe in a run up, run up, down, run down. EN1041. Yeah. Um, so, end of the show. What are we grateful for? <laughs> Anyone want to start? I'm grateful for music. As I was saying mm. before, like, sometimes when it's been a busy week, I find music just really nice and calming and meditative mm-hmm. and puts me in a good space. So mm. I'm really thankful for that. I'm going to jump onto that, Rob, actually. I've been listening to, like, um, cool, like, um, drum music. Like, dum, 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 dum. Mm. It's been good. That's it's how drums sound. That's how <laughs> drums sound. Oh, what's how about you? I am grateful for activists mm. who are dedicated enough to fight for what they believe in. Mm. Good one. <laughs> I am grateful for, um, and this is probably one that I've done before, but 3CR Studio Dogs. Station Dogs. Um, there are at least three, and I love them all, and uh, I want to see more of them. Very cute little noses poking at your knees when you're at the, <laughs> at the computer. Um, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It's 8.30 right now. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Bye.